media plays a huge role in this. We keep talking ad nauseum about Ferguson. We know now that he was not shot in the back. We know now he wasn't on his knees. We know now that he didn't have his hands, and yet we still use that as an example. We need to move off of Ferguson. Let's get another case. I don't accept that what went on in Ferguson was a justified use of force. I understand that the grand jury there chose not to indict, but I think when you look at all the facts in Ferguson, it is a very troubling shooting. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from sunny Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from, I get to say at this time, sunny Boston, Massachusetts. I, I don't get to say that much. Uh, and I write a blog called Law Sites. Well, Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, which is an online practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Craig, before we get started today, I want to point something out, uh, which is that it was 10 years ago this week that we broadcast our first show. Our first show went up on, I think, August 31st of 2005. And coincidentally, do you remember who our guest was on that first show? We didn't plan this at all. but As a matter of fact, I do, and he is a guest again today. That's right. Erwin Chemerinsky was one of our first two guests on that inaugural show, along with Mike Greco, who was then the president of the American Bar Association. So, so I guess happy anniversary to you, Craig, and, and we're, we're thrilled to have Erwin back again as well. So uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, the issue of uh, police violence, public perceptions about police violence. It was just about a year ago today, actually, that we did a show about this. And it was about a year ago that uh, the incidents uh, happened in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, that resulted in Officer Darren Wilson uh, shooting Michael Brown. There was a public uproar, nationwide debate uh, on the use of force police, uh, on the use, in some cases, of military force by police. Uh, There was a lot of discussion about that then. Uh, And uh, ultimately, the court system sided with Officer Wilson uh, but who uh, later retired uh, in part due to the events of the case. But uh, this question of police shootings continues to uh, permeate the, the public discussion. It continues to be in the news. Just today, there, there's been news about a, a, another shooting by police, uh, a lot of mixed reports coming out about just what happened there at this point. Uh, but it's a story that, that doesn't go away. And it's also a story that involves citizens uh, apparently gunning down cops as well. So there's two sides to this story. And here to talk about that today with us is Erwin Chemerinsky, as you mentioned, Bob, our our 10-year anniversary guest and uh, back for today's anniversary. So that's just great. He is the founding dean and distinguished professor of law and Raymond Professor of First Amendment Law at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. His areas of expertise include, but aren't limited to, constitutional law, federal practice, civil rights. Irwin's a renowned author of eight books, including The Case Against the Supreme Court, He has argued before the nation's highest courts and has been counseled to detainees in Guantanamo Bay detention camp 
at the Naval Base in Cuba, and he's a regular commentator on legal issues before national and local media. Welcome back to the show, Dean Chemerinsky. It's wonderful to be with you, and happy anniversary. Thank you. And also joining us today is Sergeant John Rivera. Uh, Sergeant Rivera is president of the Dade County Police Benevolent Association. He has served the Miami-Dade Police Department since 1976, uh, where he's worked in the Organized Crime Bureau and has served as a lead investigator in the Muriel Task Force. Uh, In addition, uh, John hosts the Rapid Response Radio Show on 880 AM Radio, and he is regularly featured on national and local television as a commentator on law enforcement issues. We'd like to welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Sergeant John Rivera. Hi, guys. How are you? Thank you for having us on the show. Thanks for being here. One of the things, as Craig alluded to, this is a a two-sided issue. There are shootings uh, by police and shootings of police. But the statistics uh, seem to be suggesting that this year is going to be uh, on record as, as the worst in decades uh, for the numbers of police shootings. The uh, Washington Post uh, had reported uh, in July that some 500 people had been shot and killed by police in the first six months of 2015. Uh, I think they're now saying that number is reached above 660 people who've been shot by police, uh, just 87 in just the last 30 days. At the same time, the the number of shootings of police has actually gone down this year, uh, according to the numbers I've read. So what's going on here? Do we, do we have, to what do we attribute uh, this rise in, in police shootings uh, over over the recent years? And Dean Chemerinsky, let me start with you. I don't think there's any easy explanation, and I would never make too much of one year's statistics. There's always the chance that it's just anomalous. I think it is important to know that violent crime and murder are up across the country. In light of that, it's not surprising that all kinds of violent crime up, including police shootings. Also, there's much more focus on police shootings in the last year than there's been before. That can change reporting. When something is receiving more attention, there's more reporting of it. So there might have been a number of events in the past that didn't get reported in the way they are now, and that can also explain the statistics. John, what's your sense of what is going on here in the populace? Why are there so many cops that are, are shooting citizens, and especially unarmed citizens, and what's the issue? Well, I've been saying for a couple of years now that our streets have been getting meaner and more violent day by day, and especially with the proliferation of firearms out on the streets in the hands of bad guys, our streets are meaner. As a matter of fact, just yesterday down here locally in, in the Dade-Broward area in, in Florida, there was a trooper who stopped a car, and the passenger attacked him. The passenger and the and the driver was just watching, like almost like he, he was watching a movie in the theaters. That's what police officers face every day. Now, while there has been some attention, maybe more so than in the past about police shootings, I think there's also we're going to see more attention on attacks on police officers as well. As a matter of fact, today we even had a situation where, um, or actually yesterday, where an Arby's clerk refused to serve a police officer who was going through a drive-through a sandwich just for the mere fact that it was a police officer so there there's no doubt that there's this sentiment and there's an attack on law enforcement and many people and many elected officials are are timid uh, to stand up for law enforcement well is there a problem here in terms of the police i mean sergeant you're portraying this as uh, attributable in part to a 
a rise in, in violence uh, on the streets. But is there a problem uh, with training uh, and education of police, or is there a way, a problem with the way that police are policing their neighborhoods from where you see it? Well, I'm a big proponent of training, so I, I will always submit to you that I don't think you can train us enough. And I think that departments that put more emphasis and more resources in training are the departments that have uh, lesser problems. That being said, I will tell you that media plays a huge role in this, uh, and they nobody seems to, to criticize media. But for the Ferguson, we keep talking ad nauseum about Ferguson. We know now that he was not shot in the back. We know now he didn't wasn't on his knees. We know now that he didn't have his hands, and yet we still use that as an example. We need to move off of Ferguson. Let's get another case. Let's look at, you know, if you, if you want to beat something ad nauseum, let's get the cases from South Carolina or whatever. But we keep using cases that have already been declared justified. We seem to, on one hand, say we believe in the rule of law in the American system, and yet we sort of deviate from that and we say, look, there's a problem in Ferguson. No, there wasn't a par problem in Ferguson. We know that now, but yet we keep mentioning that ad nauseum as if there was a problem and we know that it was justified. We need to get off of Ferguson and find another case. I disagree. All right. Well, that's what makes America great. I apologize for interrupting. Erwin? Of course it is. And I think that, well, I agree with much of what you said. I don't accept that what went on in Ferguson was a justified use of force. I understand that the grand jury there chose not to indict. I would be very critical of both the procedure and the substance of the grand jury decision. But I think when you look at all the facts in Ferguson, it is a very troubling shooting. When you look at what went on in Staten Island, when the chokehold killed Eric Garner, it's a very troubling example of police killing. In the South Carolina incident you allude to, at least so far as we know from the videotape, it looked to be a cold-blooded killing by the police officer. You and I would agree that police officers have an enormously difficult time. Their job in the field is so hard, and there are times when they have to use force, and we have to be careful about second-guessing them. But when I look at Ferguson, when I look at Staten Island, when I look at South Carolina, to me at least, there's strong evidence that these were unjustified shootings, unjustified killings, excessive police force. Well, you know, and, I, and I'll interrupt you, and, I, and I'm glad that we can disagree, uh, but here in the American system, if you know the grand jury and you read the report, a lot of people talk about Ferguson and never read the report. I did read the report, and all of the witnesses were African-American. They were people from that community, and they testified in a way that uh, exonerated the police officer. So if we're not going to accept that, we're never going to accept anything other than and the final outcome of what certain people want in this community, and that's unacceptable. That's completely un-American. That's not my point. I, th I think part of the reaction to Ferguson, though, wasn't part of the reaction to Ferguson due to the, to the response when people in that community became uh, upset uh, over, over the shooting and, and began to protest. Uh, the, the response by the police was militaristic to a degree. It, it brought in you know, heavy uh, tanks and, and armored vehicles uh, and, and acted as though they were responding in, in, a, in a military kind of a situation. And there seemed to be a feeling that you know, that was uh, further evidence, I guess, of, of overreaction, perhaps, by police to a situation, a lack of understanding of a community to a situation. 
I think that's a good point. I just want to go back and say, I've read the grand jury materials from Ferguson. I've read the statements from witnesses that would support the officer, but also statements from witnesses to make clear, I think that the officer used excessive force. And we could look at that evidence, but I don't think it's fair to say that because some witnesses supported the officer's story, that that's what most, let alone all witnesses, did. And of course, then there's the question of what happened when there was unrest in Ferguson, and it was a very militaristic response. I think the key point where we would agree is, well, Ferguson is important, it's not the whole story. And the story isn't a new one. Excessive police force, especially directed at African-American men, men of color, is not a new problem. In 1968, the Kerner Commission on the Cause and Prevention of Urban Violence talked about all of the major riots in the 1960s were precipitated by police violence. And you can go through study after study that shows that if whites and blacks are engaged in the same behavior, say the same traffic violations, blacks are more likely to get stopped. If whites and blacks are stopped, blacks are more likely to get arrested. If whites and blacks are arrested, excess of police force more likely to be directed at blacks. When they're charged for the same crimes with the same prior history, blacks are likely to be charged with more serious offenses. And when sentencing happens, holding all else equal, blacks are likely to get larger sentences. So I think we have to look at this as part of a larger problem of race in the criminal justice system. And it's a serious one. I think everybody agrees. Well, if your, if your, argument, if your argument does hold true, then the solution, I think, is very simple. You use only African-American police officers in African-American communities, and you only use white officers in white communities, and you only use Hispanic officers in Hispanic communities. That way you eliminate the racist part. But you know what? We know that that's not factual. And let's go back to Ferguson. Let's, let's, let's digest it a little bit more. We keep talking about police, the militarization of, of the police. Folks, what we're missing here, we're all Every one of us are guilty of giving these people a scapegoat. We're giving them an out. What's happened in Ferguson wasn't necessarily that the police were the bad guys in per se. It's the elected officials who had a gap in their budget. They used the police force to really torture the black community with traffic citations. You're already creating. But who's the face that we attack as the police? Those elected officials got off scot-free. And you know who made the decision to buy all the military equipment? Not the police officer on the street. It was the elected officials. Ferguson was created as a result of the elected officials' inability to have a proper budget and the elected officials' decision to have those type of equipments and other factors from outside that came into Ferguson because thugs from other areas came. And But who do we blame? We don't blame the elected officials. We always give them a pass. We always give them a pass. Police officers, just like we did in Vietnam when our military went over there, we crapped on the military, but we did not hold Congress's feet to the fire. You're absolutely just like right. we saw with the Secret Service. People are now walking into the White House. We blame Secret Service for the lack of security. We don't blame Congress for cutting their budget. Well, we've done a pretty good job of analyzing some of the issues. But before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. 
Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Craig Williams, and with us today is Dean Irwin Chemerinsky from the University of California Irvine School of Law and Sergeant John Rivera from the Miami-Dade Police Department. In our last segment, we were talking about uh, identifying the significant racial and a whole host of issues that cause these the situations that we've been talking about with uh, police killing citizens and citizens killing police. But I'd like to turn for a moment, Irwin, and ask what do you think history teaches us on how to resolve these issues? I think history teaches us that these are incredibly difficult issues. I certainly agree that the problem isn't just with the police. The problem is with elected officials who direct the use of the police. But it's also important to remember that in Ferguson, it was a white officer that killed an African-American man. And it's the same thing that happened in so many of these other cities. I think we need to have systematic efforts at police reform. I agree very much that training is key, but we need more than that. I think we need, for example, what's now happening in Los Angeles, body cameras on officers so we have clear monitoring of what happened. I think we need to change the legal system to make it much easier for victims of abuse to sue the officers responsible in the cities that employ them. Erwin, you you placed uh, in in an op-ed you wrote last year, you you attributed – some of the issue here to, to the Supreme Court. Uh, you had an op-ed in the New York Times saying how the Supreme Court protects bad cops. Does there need to be a constitutional change or just a, a new court uh, coming forward on this? It's not a constitutional change. It could be, it's about the way the court has interpreted statutes, and so it could be changed if the court alters its interpretation of those laws or by Congress. The key statute here, as you know, is one that was adopted right after the Civil War. It's called 42 United States Code, Section 1983. And it says you can sue anyone acting under color of law who violates the Constitution or laws of the United States. The Supreme Court has said that excess police force violates the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. But the Supreme Court has said that local governments can be sued under the statute only if it's proven that their policy or custom caused the constitutional violation. So if a police officer unjustifiably kills somebody, the city's liable only proven that that city policy caused it. In every other context, think of in the law, an employer is liable for what an employee does in the scope of his or duties. And the Supreme Court has made it very difficult to sue police officers, even when they use grossly excessive force. Sergeant Rivera, there was a uh, police uh, chief out of Philadelphia this week uh, who said, uh, was quoted in the news as saying, body cameras make good cops great cops and make marginal ones follow the rules. What's your position on body cameras? 
Well, I think that's the flavor of the month right now, but uh, I don't know that it's going to be the cure-all. What you're going to have is police officers are going to back off, just like you saw in Baltimore. Then, you know, murder rate goes up 55%, and, of course, they're going to blame the cops again for that stuff. Look, uh, we have NFL has 30 cameras on every play, and they sometimes don't get it right, even with all the cameras on there. These cameras are not the cure-all. These cameras, and depending on how they use the cameras, whether the camera has a night vision, has capabilities that the human eye, we're always going to criticize the officer. You should have seen that because the camera caught peripheral view. The human eye doesn't do that, and the human brain works on, uh, and the training the officers have is if I could have a crowd of people, 20, 30 people, if I perceive one guy in the red shirt as to be the threat, I go into tunnel vision. I look at that threat. Now, there might be another guy in the blue shirt who's really a bigger threat, but for whatever reason, my brain focused on the guy with the red shirt. But the camera is going to have the panoramic view. Then you're going to have all kinds of lawyers and media people that are going to be the Monday morning quarterbacks. Oh, he should have seen that. He should have seen this. No, you don't know that because you're not in that situation. And it is so easy from those of us that sit behind a desk with white shirts and ties in air conditioning, not realizing the situation that's going on the street. You don't have the human senses. You sometimes just training tells you the way a person clenches the fist. The camera may not capture that. The way the person looks and, and acts. Those are all training things that common sense and human nature dictate that the camera is impossible to ever capture. So the camera, good tool, but not the cure-all. There's been a policy proposal put out by the protest organization Black Lives Matter. It has 10 different tenets. They propose to end broken policing, community oversight, limit the use of force, independently investigate and prosecute, community representation, and others. Erwin, have you seen that? And if so, what's your comment on it? I have, and I think many of the proposals are desirable. In terms of cameras, which I just want to respond to, I met just this morning with representatives of the Los Angeles Police Department that is pulling the cameras. What they said they're already finding is that cameras do change police behavior in a positive way, that police officers are less likely to be overly aggressive, less likely to use profanities when they know that they're being watched. They have not seen that police officers are unduly restricting themselves um, and this is coming from top officials in the LAPD. Now, in terms of some of the other proposals, all of the studies show that community-based policing is desirable. I think independent investigation and prosecution of police shootings is desirable. I wrote a report on the LAPD in the year 2000 in which I found that the problem with leaving investigation and prosecution to the DA's office is that the district's office have too close relationship to the police officers. They rely on the police officers in all of their cases, and it would be better to have some independent investigation of police shooting, and if necessary, independent prosecution, not relying on the DAs that have such a close relationship with the police on a day-to-day basis. And just so you gentlemen know something here in Dade County, we hate our prosecutor, and the prosecutor hates cops. We have a wonderful relationship with our public defender, and there has not been a police officer indicted here. So I don't know that that theory works everywhere in America. What about approaches to policing? You know, there's a lot of talk about the fact that uh, police have to stop 
taking a, a crime deterrent uh, approach and focus more on engaging with the community, uh, understanding the community, uh, and becoming you know more engaged with the, the members of the community. Is that an effective uh, way, or could that be an effective way to help uh, reduce uh, incidents uh, of police and citizen violence, uh, whether directed to the citizen or directed to police? Uh, if you're asking me, John, the question, I, I agree with you. I think that community policing is huge, huge, huge. You can't say enough about that, but what happens is the elected officials, what they do is they take resources from those community policing type of programs and they put it into cameras. For example, these cameras are going to cost an enormous amount of money. You, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be cities, mark my word, Record it and keep it in, in your in your in your archives there because there are going to be some cities that are probably have to bankrupt because the cost of these things. But that money that would have otherwise gone for better community relations, community policing, to improve those relationships and really, quite honestly, to help the the poor, uh, is going to be used in in technology. Uh, look, I think the justice system has a lot of flaws. I think we incarcerate sometimes for the smallest crimes or drug infractions when we. Should should be trying to rehabilitate them and violent criminals we let on the streets. I think our system needs a revamping. We've got it like sort of backwards. This has been a really interesting discussion. I, I know that we're at least uh, one of our guests today is, is tight on time. And so uh, I want to uh, try and uh, bring the discussion to a close. And uh, before I do that, I'd like to give our guests an opportunity to uh, kind of sum up their thoughts uh, on this topic. Uh, and also, uh, to uh, let our listeners know how they can follow up if they're interested in, in learning more about this or discussing more about it. And uh, Erwin, I, I know you're tight on time, so let me uh, let me turn to you and ask if you'd like to share your, your closing thoughts on this. Thank you. I think the events of the last year have shown that there is a problem of policing, especially in minority communities. And there's a problem with how officers who use excessive force are brought to justice. My hope is that all of the attention on this will lead to some of the kinds of reforms that we're talking about. Community-based policing, body cameras on officers, independent investigation and prosecution of police shooting. I totally agree that police have a terribly difficult job. They have to make split-second judgments in the field, but that should never be an excuse for excessive force. It should never be an excuse to justify some of the things that we've seen in Ferguson or in Staten Island or in South Carolina. And John, uh, your final thoughts? Yeah, you know, and, and I appreciate his comments and his words. You know, we've had several people from ACLU and other organizations down here and, and can sort of make the same claims, and, and we welcome them with them with open arms. We even had a black preacher who was one of the biggest critics of police, and then we put him in a, in, a, in a scenario, in a training scenario. He wound up killing two innocent people, and then he wound up getting killed himself, and then he came out publicly and said, wow, I didn't realize that. Here locally, we invited the ACLU to have one of those training sessions, you know, and, and he, at first he said yes, then he backed off. So I, I, I welcome people like Dean it's great. You know, it's like we see that football quarterback. He should have seen that open. Uh, how could he not have seen that wide receiver open? How could he not? He's a professional. You know what? Get on the field, take the hits, and then you'll see if you see that wide receiver. Same thing with these folks. We welcome. Let's work together. Let's not work apart. I think there's a great solution. I think we can make America better. We can make our communities better. I think we got to hold the elected officials' feet to the fire. we got to stop using the police officers like scapegoats. We, we've got to stop 
quota systems because that, in my view, tortures community members. I think we can. I think we can find a better future. We just got to work together. Great. And John, if our listeners would like to reach out to you, how can they do that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, www.dcpba.org. And we'd be more than happy to field any questions. Well, thanks to both of you for taking the time to be with us today. We really appreciate uh, your thoughts uh, and your comments on this issue. Thank you all. It's always a pleasure to be with you, and I look forward to doing this again soon, but also 10 years from now for your 20th anniversary. (laughs) Well, that's a deal. And that brings us to the end of our show. This is Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.